Welcome to the Huntback Country Podcast today, and thank you for tuning in. This is episode number 283. Before we dive into today's show, I wanted to quickly remind you that this month, in May of 2021, we're doing a special giveaway through the podcast. So there's a few ways to enter. It's really simple. I'll break it down like this. Number one, you can send us a comment, suggestion, or idea for a future show via email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. Number two, you can leave us a review in iTunes or wherever else you might be listening to this that accepts podcast reviews, and that would help tremendously. Number three, you can share an episode. You can take a screenshot while you're listening on your phone, post that to Instagram, for example, and then just tag us at Hunt Backcountry. So number one, email us a topic, suggestion, or question. Number two, leave a review. Or number three, share this on social and tag us. We will be giving away a $250 Exo Mountain Gear gift card at the end of May. All right, our guest today is Matt Starley. He is a guy that I've known of for quite a few years. I think going back to 2014, 2015, he was a customer of Exo Mountain Gear, and I've just observed him over the years. A very successful hunter with elk and mule deer. He lives in the Northwest, as you'll hear, and he's transitioned from being a bow hunter to a traditional bow hunter. We talk a bit about that transition and much more, including a recent hunt from this past fall where he had the opportunity to hunt with his son and his dad and have three generations in the elk woods for some experiences that they will never forget. To be honest with you guys, it's hard to title this episode. It's hard to recap it. We touch on so many different topics that I found helpful, both practical, a little bit of philosophical, and everything in between. So there's something in here for you, no matter where you're coming from or what you're hunting, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, Matt, welcome to the Hunts Back Country podcast, man. I'm excited to chat with you today. Thank you for having me, Mark. I'm, I'm definitely excited to get on here and talk with you. Yeah, it's been uh, it's overdue. I'll put it that way. Um, just to kick things off, like how would you kind of give an introduction background, whether that's kind of more personal or hunting related, but just to begin to let folks know a little bit about who you are and what you're up to. Yeah. Um, well, my name is Matt Starley, and I just have always loved hunting, archery hunting. I grew up archery hunting, and uh, I've basically kind of come to know Steve and and now you Mark through uh just through the hunting I wouldn't say industry I'm not really actively involved in the industry but um Steve when he started uh Pure Elevation Productions uh back in the day and like the full jaw film tour was kind of at its infancy um I w- was involved in getting uh getting some films in with that and got to know Steve and got to know um like Cody Kellum when he started it and so that's kind of where my entry to uh XO Mountain Packs and I, I started learning about your guys's backpacks and started actually using them was was through all of that and kind of the full jaw film tour and the connections I had there and uh as I yeah as my brother and I started using your guys's packs it really uh it changed the way we hunted it was one of those things where it really was a huge difference maker. And I know now there's lots of, of backpack companies that offer similar style packs, but um, it's pretty funny because today before, like when you asked me to come on the podcast, I was looking at my, uh, I was looking at my, some of my pictures and I realized I have the same XO pack since 2015. I'm still using it. And uh, I don't really need to get a new one. I've, I've been really impressed with it, but to answer your question, that's kind of how I came to know Steve and uh, come into uh, using an Exo pack is through the Full Draw Film Tour. And that all developed through my love for just hunting. Um, I've always had a passion for editing, you know, and doing the video editing process, whether it be a hunting video or um, I've even done weddings and commercials and stuff like that. I shouldn't say commercials, but like really uh when i for some other people that i knew i've done some video and things for them but i just like editing and the artistic part of that 
And so that has led me into, um, that just kind of led me down the road. I loved hunting and I love video editing. So why wouldn't I want to film our hunts? And as we did that more and played around with it, it was just something that we really enjoyed my brother and I. And, uh, so we created, uh, just a name more than anything. I wouldn't even call it necessarily a company because it's not like we're generating money or or like even you know trying to generate money from it but uh, rogue wild productions is what we ca- call ourselves and we uh, have enjoyed just making uh, videos of our hunts and sharing those with people and then also just having them for ourselves and our like our family and our kids to be able to look back on um really is why we do it uh i don't um, I don't know. I don't really have a desire to try to make it a career or a profession. I enjoy doing it. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you make something uh, become work, it, it can take some of the joy and the fun out of it. So, yeah, that's totally true. It's, it's nice to kind of stay in that like passion um, place versus like just getting to worry about profit. Cause like you said, it keeps it fun and it's, for even you it's like yeah i'm interested in video and i'm interested in hunting combine them and that's a whole lot of fun versus turning it into work and then it becomes something else yeah yeah definitely it allows you to just do what you want to do sometimes when you have to find a way to make money with it you have to do things that aren't really what you want to do but you have to do it you know to and then if your motivator it becomes finances and money it kind of changes the heart behind things too so yeah um, that's one thing that we've always wanted to do is just put content out there to, you know, share our adventure. But one of the biggest things that I've really felt passionate about is try to represent hunting in a positive manner. Um, but also, you know, not hide stuff too. show it like truthfully how it happens. So, mm-hmm. um, it's a, uh, that's a delicate balance because as you know, sometimes hunting, especially archery hunting, things don't go always the way that we plan. Even when you practice and you work hard and you try to make things, um, you know, make good decisions, things happen fast. These animals are wild and they want to live, you know, and, and sometimes things don't happen the right way. And you learn lessons that, you know, that you, um, mistakes you made that hopefully if you can show those to other people, maybe that'll help them see, um and learn from that mistake so when they're out there they don't make the same mistake yeah yeah for sure man one of the um recent films from uh from rogue wild that i saw here recently on youtube and folks can go check it out we'll put a link in the show description but it's a pretty special hunt with uh you your father and your son and I think any hunt with three generations like that's going to be really neat but there are some things with tags and even health and all that that made it even more special but tell us a bit about that hunt man yeah it was a a pretty incredible opportunity for us as a family um the year so just to kind of give some background the year before that hunt my dad had had a bunch of points in wyoming drew this tag that he had waited you know 10 years to draw and we went over there and we have that film on there too um and uh he had we had a great hunt he got into a lot of elk he really had kind of it was funny because he hasn't he hasn't had a lot of archery elk hunting experience and success and uh, so when he had bulls bugling all around him he just kind of he fell apart in a lot of ways and uh, there was like i was mentioning before there was a lot of mistakes made that we kind of all learned from he learned from and i didn't withhold from the video but long story short was he got a nice bull and we had a great hunt and it was like one of those things that we really enjoyed that experience but i didn't bring my son with me he was a little bit young and i knew it was going to be um you know cold and kind of maybe a little bit above what he was ready for but this year um my dad put in for that tag again which it's less than a three percent chance of drawing it with with less than maximum points so it's it's basically you know like winning the lottery and he drew the tag again this year with no points and on top of that in the springtime um like kind of right after he found out that he drew that he was diagnosed with prostate cancer and uh they had found it early, luckily, but he had to have surgery and have it removed and recover from that. And 
it was just such a blessing him drawing that tag that he was had something to look forward to. I really feel like it was just God being extra gracious to him um, through that hard time and giving him something to look forward to and kind of work uh, towards as he was recovering. And then uh, so his surgery went well. He recovered well that summer. He also, on top of that, threw a Nevada archery elk tag, which was, I know. So he drew two of these like really coveted tags this that year. And uh, we could only hash out like the year before we sacrificed our hunting elk hunting time that my brother and I usually get about a week in September, maybe 10 days we can hash out for just going somewhere. And so we took that time to go with him last year and hunt with him and help him get his bull. And it was awesome. And then uh, this year we tried to figure out how we do the same thing. And so we ended up going um, to what we decided to go to Wyoming because we knew that hunt we knew the unit and we knew like that we could help him call and do all that. His Nevada tag was in August and it was earlier in the season. The elk weren't really getting real ruddy yet. And, uh, and we weren't meet with him on the, he uh, went out there with his girlfriend. He ended up getting a spike like on the last weekend. He had a great hunt. He saw lots of elk. There was like nobody out there. He said he felt like he had the whole place to himself, but it was kind of a tough hunt because it was, not the normal, you know, elk calling action that you're kind of used to. Um, mm-hmm. But he ended up, we, we, uh, you know, I, this trip, I really wanted to take my son. We kind of knew what to expect and knew where we'd be going. And I knew he could handle it. Um, part of the reason I didn't bring him was I didn't really know how hard it was going to be. Um, but the areas that we got into elk um, were, not so physically demanding that actually my son probably did better than my dad did um, just because he had surgery and all that too. So it was just fun to get to go experience that with them. We were able to video that hunt and, uh, and for my son to be there and to learn and experience that and see him like get that uh, experience of a bull, like butte coming in and bugle at one point in that video, it, it probably doesn't show it real great because the camera was by my dad and well, the bull had kind of went past my dad and my dad passed it up and the bull, this muddy big five point comes right into us at like 25 yards and bugles right at us. And my son, I remember looking back and seeing him and he's like crouched behind this tree. Like this thing is going to kill me. I'm so afraid right now. (laughs) And uh, his eyes were like, like looking at me like what's gonna happen and uh the bull ended up winning us and running off but it was just one of those moments that i'll like always remember and i think he'll always remember and it was cool to be able to share that on a video too um to look back on yeah that's awesome man that's one of the things with you know i have like zero desire to to either film my own hunts or even be on hunts that are filmed which i've had the opportunity to do and i'm just like i don't care for it's just not my thing and uh but that is one thing where for the truly for the memory sake not for like youtube or full draw film tour or anything else but just like build for yourself or friends and family to go back and relive that like i see the value in that from a video perspective and so to me it's super cool that you guys have this with your father and your son and there's now this published video and you guys could go back to it and your son can go back to that and 20 years and 30 years and relive that that's awesome yeah it really it's one of those things that like the value of it honestly i think will go increase with time right like if we could go watch what our our uh, grandparents did growing up and the things that they did i think it would just be such a cool thing to look back and see how it was when they were around and things that they enjoyed and um, yeah. So, I mean, that part of it is a huge part driving force for me. And it's even more of a driving force later in life because I honestly, I'm the same as you, like it's a lot of extra work to video hunt. Like you have to stop and do shots to, if, if you're doing it for like a really, like a project you run in good quality, like if you want to just document it and have it for memory, then obviously you can, you don't have to make it a lot of extra work, but that's become more one of the reasons that I do it because it does take away from the hunt in a sense that um, you have this camera, you're kind of trying to do things. It's, it just adds a different element that when you're just hunting and enjoying being out there that you 
don't have to think about, you know, a camera or, or the being in the right lighting or, you know, let's go back and video this walking so we can have like a good transition to the next scene. So this makes sense. Like none of that happens when you're out hunting for just to hunt. And I love that more than anything. It's just having the freedom. And I think that's one of the reasons why, um, as much as I, I love it, like the filming part of it, um, that's one of the reasons why I don't want it to be a job. I want to be able to just kind of pick and choose when I want to do it. And I want to try to do it in a setting where I can create that memory or that, you know, whatever, whatever my motivating factor is that I can do it when I want it. And when I don't want to, I can just go hunt and enjoy the experience. So it's kind of fun to have both, you know, options. Right. For sure. This could be a, you know, a podcast all on its own this topic, but I'm just kind of curious, any sort of highlights or like particular notes of getting your son involved in hunting and what that's looked like, you know, kind of that balance of keeping it fun versus having them kind of embrace maybe some crappy weather and hard conditions and things like that. And, you know, there's, there's so many variables there of their own self-interest, their own interest in hunting and you nurturing that without forcing it and there's just all kinds of variables that come into play so uh again we could chat for two hours on that but just highlights from your experience so far yeah no you're i mean you're spot on with a lot of that it kind of comes down to parenting and you know uh, a lot of times i want my kids to do things that i'm passionate about you know like i love shooting bows and i've had my bows in my kids hands since they could walk. Um, all of them have had a bow and tried to, I've tried to work with them since they were like two or three years old. And luckily all of them enjoy shooting a bow, you know, some to different levels, uh, of enjoyment, you know, some of them are more gravitated to than, than others. But, um, I think the main thing is just being there and giving them the opportunity to experience it, you know, and then, um, there might be times in their life where they're not really into it. And, as a parent, I'm learning, you know, to not try to force um, your passions and desires on them because they're their own person. And uh, that's one of the biggest thing I think as a parent you learn is your kids are so different, right? Like they're just each their own individual person and, and embracing that I think is probably the most important thing. Although I, I won't say I necessarily do the best job at that, but I'm learning that. Um, and then giving them the opportunity to experience the things that you like. And uh, it's tough. You want to make it fun for them. You want to make it enjoyable, but you can't ultimately, they're going to either like it or they're not going to like it. And I just, I don't know. I mean, archery is one thing I see all kids kind of gravitate towards or shootings. You know, those are things that guns can be a little bit scary, but bows, a lot of kids, almost all of them that I've exposed to archery, I seem to love it. And then uh, being outside when it's not the horrible weather, you know, and you're outside and enjoying what God created. Um, how can you not like that? So I think most kids will like that if you give them the, the right opportunity. And I think just being there and being available and, you know, trying to um, to support them in that the best you can is, is really all you can do. And if they like it, great. And if they're into something else, then that's okay, too. Yeah, creating those opportunities is just important, you know, and, and giving them the chance. And sometimes we even, I think, are maybe prone to discount, like, what they even are capable of. I mean, I can think of, like, certain hikes I've done with my daughter or you know, shoot this weekend, actually. There was this there was this workout thing, this outdoor workout group that I do sometimes with a group of guys. And occasionally on Saturdays, it's the same group of guys, but then they'll bring their kids. And uh, it was, like, pouring rain this last Saturday morning and... I think it was in like the upper forties. It was pretty crappy conditions and it almost didn't even say anything to them. Like, Hey, do you guys want to go to this father kid workout just cause the weather was so terrible. But then I mentioned it and they're like, heck yeah, let's go play in the rain. You know, like they just eat that stuff up. So sometimes it's us that are like <laughs> not giving them, you know, the opportunity to even kind of embrace that. Yeah. You're spot on with that. They are a lot tougher than we are. We go uh, on a float trip every year with some really good friends of ours and on the John Day river. And it's like one year we were down there and the wind was blowing like 30 miles an hour. The tents are falling over and we're like all miserable. The parents are all like, why are we here? This sucks. And the kids were just running around playing like, like this is the funnest thing ever. You know, yeah. it's totally the case. I think that uh, they're capable way more than, 
then you think Paxton, my oldest son, he on that hunt. I mean, he was, we had a hard time keeping up with him. He, we had to tell him to kind of like chill out and slow down. And I mean, we weren't hiking an insane amount because my dad couldn't get around as good, but still to do, you know, well, I think one day we did seven or eight miles in a day. And for a kid to do that in the woods and the mountains, is, it didn't phase him near as much as it phased my dad. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like hunting that? same area two years in a row um you know a lot of people get that opportunity to do that you know in their home state right or maybe on the over an over-the-counter tag but um you know wyoming that being a draw tag not super easy to draw i'm just kind of curious was the experience pretty similar in those back-to-back years were there big differences um you know just in terms of the number of elk, the activity elk, were you there in different times of year that maybe were a factor or things like that? Yeah. So we went the same time of year, both years. And <clears throat> we found a spot in there. Um, the first year it was like, I think it was the second day of our hunt. We found this spot that was just, there was just multiple bulls bugling down in this area. And it was, it was just good hunting. Um, and it was pretty predictable as far as like how they were using it. We, we were able to figure that out relatively quick. Um, the first day we followed them into where their bedding area was, you know, kind of trailing them. And then the, the next days we realized, you know, we can come around and side hill and, and basically just be where they want to be in the morning. And that really helped our, our calling to be calling from where they were going, you know, versus mm. behind they're going to bed and they don't want to come back. So that was really helpful this year. We knew the area, we knew where they, like we had already had learned that. And uh, the first morning of the hunt, we dropped right back into that spot for thing and uh, heard a bull bugle down in there. And we're like, there's this nice bench that they kind of angle up the side hill to kind of bed somewhere up along that Ridge. A lot of times is what we had noticed the prior year. And, and so we set up and called like just we're like it was perfect because our wind we're kind of right on this edge and the wind was dropping down you know to us but the way they're coming they think that they're, they have the wind in their favor until they get to where we're at so it was uh, it was like a perfect scenario and this I mean I won't ruin the the video but the first morning we had a real big six point come right in like first thing and I mean it was the first half hour 45 minutes of the hunt and um yeah anyways i won't elaborate on what happens in case <laughs> you watch it but um the hunt was pretty comparable i mean i'd say like there were multiple bulls in that area again this year um or this last season when we hunted it we did go hunt some other areas that we got into elk um the previous year and it was not as good um, one of the areas that we had got into elk, there was elk there, but you could tell they had been hunted. They were pressured. Um, well, the, one of the bulls there, uh, he didn't want, not want to talk as much. You could see that there was camps that had been set up there, you know, and uh, on that particular hunt, there's just a lot of people out and about in the mountains where we were hunting and they're not all hunters. Most of them aren't, but it just kind of the, the, one of the weird impressions I had from both years was just like, it feels like you can't get away from people because there's so many roads everywhere and there's people camping everywhere and riding ATVs everywhere. So we had to kind of really focus on those areas where you, you, they were either hard to get to or just getting off the road a mile or two where people aren't readily driving and walking. And that seemed to be where the elk were at, but, but it was good once you found them. I mean, once you got into them, it was good hunting. So you mentioned, uh, archery, this has always been a big part of your life. And, uh, in recent years, I know that's been more and more, and I think maybe strictly for you now, traditional archery. When did you make that transition, uh, traditional archery and what was that like for you? Yeah. Um, so I made the transition to traditional archery in about, Oh, I think it was 20, it was four years ago. So 20, the season of 2017 was the first year where I said, I'm just going to, I actually sold my compound. Um, Going first, all in, huh? Well, the first year I didn't sell my compound until after the season. But I told myself I'm not. I'm not even going to shoot it. I'm just going to put it away. I had bounced back and forth um, at times, and uh, 
And I've always been loved shooting a traditional bow. I've always been like, man, that's just something I wanted, wanted to do, you know, like kind of like a goal. It's like, man, someday I would love to try to get an animal with a traditional bow. And, and so that's always kind of been a, a goal, like deep down that I've always kind of held on to someday. I wanted to, to try it. And I've archery hunted since, you know, I've shot a bow since I was five years old. Um, I started with a compound and archery hunted with a compound most of my life. Um, I didn't get, I think I got my first deer when I was like six, 15 years old or no, I was 16. It was the year I could drive. And that was really when I got the archery bug bad was when I got my first deer. And then I really, since then, you know, between, I didn't get my first elk till I was like 20 um, years old. I was in college. And then, um, then I started elk hunting a lot more and, uh, but anyways, just with archery hunting, it's, it's always been a passion and it's just, you know, as a hunter, you hear that you kind of go through these phases and these stages of your hunting, um, career and what's important to you or, or just your passion with it. And, um, that's definitely been the case with me, like with traditional archery, it was one of those things that. The fear of failure, I was used to. I got to a point where, I mean, not trying to brag or anything. I'm just saying, like, I would usually always fill my elk tag and always fill my deer tag. And that was something that I took pride in and that we would utilize to live off of and eating the meat. And so when I made that switch, there was a, a lot of fear of not being able to fill my tag and be able to have meat. You know, that's a huge part of my family. We live off of elk burger and and deer meat. And, uh, so it was just, it's like, man, if I didn't get an elk or a deer this year, like that would be a pretty big deal to my family, not to mention just my pride as a hunter too. There's <laughs> much as I would like to say that it doesn't matter, matter that much to me, but it kind of does because we put, I put a ton of time and effort into it. And, um, and so it feels like, you know, it, it can seem like if you don't fill your tag, that that was a, you know, it wasn't successful. It was like kind of a wasted season, but as I've, you know, transitioned to traditional archery, what I've realized is that the, what we consider success shouldn't be a filled tag because in the last four years, the amount of growth that I've had as a hunter, you know, I kind of got, I can't even really put it into words or describe fully, um, just the, how it's increased my passion for hunting. It's increased my knowledge of the animals and that I hunt. And it's forced me to like understand them on a deeper level than just before where I'd go out and like, I could, you know, make a mistake or something would happen, but I could still shoot that elk at 50 yards or 60 yards with my bow. And it was over. So the season was over where now it's like, I can't shoot, you know, an elk past really 30 yards is a pretty long shot for a traditional bow. And so it's forced me like before I would get, you know, I could fill my tag and maybe a handful of encounters with elk, I would get a shot with my compound where now it's like, I found I need like on average seven or eight encounters that I could normally shoot with my compound to get one opportunity with my traditional bow. And so it's, uh, it's really forced me to, you know, learn new things that I wasn't doing before or, um, and just understand the animals on a deeper level. So I, it's enriched my hunting experience. I could talk forever about it. It's, but it's made me so excited to go hunting this year. I feel like a kid, like going on my first time, you know, like on my first hunt almost this uh, is just cause it's so uh, exciting to try to get better at it because there's such a, a a big learning curve and I don't think you could ever master it I think that uh, you know it's just a progression of of as a hunter who enjoys the challenge of it um, traditional archery just was like a natural progression for me and it's it's been a ton of fun there's a you know kind of like a whole culture around traditional archery um and I'll call myself an outsider. I don't shoot traditional archery. I mean, sure, I've, I've flung stick and string you know, casually, right? But I've never taken it serious, never hunted with a traditional bow. Um, what are some of the things that, I'll call them standard, <laughs> that non-traditional archers 
are maybe mistaken about or don't understand or just kind of like wrong impressions of when it comes to traditional archery and traditional archery hunters. And I go, there's probably like stereotypes involved here, but uh, since you've kind of gone through that transition of kind of looking from the outside in and then now call it taking a deep dive, like what are some of the things like, oh, I didn't think it was this way, but you know. Yeah, no, that's a really good question, Mark. Um, when I was growing up, I had a, there was a, a friend of my dad's that shot traditional archery and he was always kind of razzing us. Oh, why don't you get a real bow, you know, and all this. And I always thought, I, part of me was like, well, oh, that, you know, that is a, that is a real bow you've got there. But I'm like, I, def- I don't want to do that. Like I want to actually get something. And, and there's a big argument for, the effectiveness of a traditional bow, you know, like the ethical, like making a clean ethical kill. Um, and I think that is a lot of times what people will be like, well, oh, I just, I want, you know, out of respect for the animal, I want to make a quick clean kill. And I think that that is probably a big misconception is just how lethal a traditional bow is and can be with the, with the proper practice and with, the proper shot selection. And uh, just like archery hunting with a compound, there is room for error and there's more room for error with a traditional archery. I don't think you can argue that, but I think the, the, one of the biggest misconceptions that people may not, I, I just thought this is like common sense, but as I've done both now, like traditional archery is very, is different than hunting with a compound today. When 40, you know, 40 years ago or 50 years ago, when the compound, you know, was just becoming popular and people started to use it, there wasn't a big difference between a compound and a recurve at that point. Like guys could shoot basically the same. They had very crude sights. A lot of them still shot fingers. And then, you know, so there wasn't a big difference initially with arch, with those two methods of equipment. But now, you know, the invention of the, of, of, of just the release in itself made a huge difference in having a clean re- release of the string versus, you know, having to use your fingers to have that clean release. That is probably one of the biggest changes I felt like in um, the difference of the two. And I guess the main thing is I just, if I could say anything after being on both sides and I love archery, I love compound archery. My wife shoots a compound, my, you know, um, my, my dad, and my, you know, most of my friends that I hunt with, they all use compounds. So I'm not against it at all. And I think some people could have the misconception that, you know, there are kind of the crusty old timers that are like maybe angry at people who use that, but like, I'm not angry at all. It's just, I think it's important to know that it's different, that it is much more challenging um, like I can just tell you where I was at with a compound. I could shoot, you know, I've, I don't like shooting long distances. I would want to get close, but like, as you know, Mark, when you go to the Northwest mountain challenge, I mean, they have targets out there at hundred, 110 yards and guys are hitting those targets consistently with a compound, making good shots on them with range finder and being able to do that. And so I would say it's pretty safe assumption that you could take like that average bow hunter with a compound that practices a decent amount and puts a fair amount of effort into it that he could shoot effectively at 40 or 50 yards pretty easily like i don't do you think that's safe to say yeah i think so i mean it, yeah it's uh um, it's <laughs> yeah very- right right yeah I, especially on the range right whether that guy can then hold it together and make a 40 50 yard shot in the heat of the moment that's like that's almost separate from the skill of shooting the bow at that point but yeah i fully agree with what you're saying on the premise i'm not i'm not gonna say like this isn't a hunting scenario i'm just talking yes. to shoot in the bow um so you know if we transition that to traditional archery like i shoot a ton i shoot all year I would consider myself maybe one who puts more time in than the average traditional archer for me to shoot at 40 yards is like similar to me shooting at a hundred yards with a compound 90, 80 to 90 or hundred yards. That's just my like unbiased, just comparison. So for me, like a 30 yard shots, like a 60 yard shot would have been for me with my compound. We're now mm-hmm. like a shots that like 30 or 40 yard shot. And anything inside of that, it gets easier. So that's just my comparison of why, why they're different. You just, you have to get closer. There are guys that are break that mold. Like Joel Turner, if you watch Joel Turner shoot a traditional bow, I mean, he can shoot and hit 
really good groups at like 60 yards. I don't think he's probably going to shoot animals that far, but it's really impressive to see there's a varying range, just like there is in modern archery. I guess the main thing I would want to say now standing on, having standed on both sides is saying that they're, they're different and they're not the same. And it's not that one is better than the other. I think as we're going to kind of get into the conversation that you want to talk about, uh, knowing that they're different will help us move forward in the future and maybe try to utilize the, the two modes in different ways to preserve a hunting opportunity and to create new hunting opportunity too. Um, but it's probably the, the biggest thing is that you have to be one who enjoys the challenge. Um, it, you know, to do it, you have to be okay with failure and you have to understand that in that failure, you're actually going to have growth and success. And it's, I mean, you can compare that to your guys' death hike, anything really hard you do in life. That is, uh, although it's really challenging and you're afraid to fail and maybe you do fail, maybe you don't do that, but there's a certain amount of growth that comes through that failure. And when you get back up and you try again and you keep trying again and you keep pressing forward, like that's going to put you in a place that's a lot different than just doing something that's really comfortable and I'm good at, and I can do the same every year, but it's not pushing me outside of my boundaries to grow. Um, you know, the person you're going to be is going to be different. And, you know, 10 years down the road, if you're doing the challenging things and failing at times and, and doing those things versus just doing what you've already done and you're comfortable with. And I guess that's maybe why, uh, that's what I've considered success is the growth and understanding the animals better, the connection you get with, uh, with the land and your, the quarry you're chasing, I think is, is unmatched. That's one of the biggest things I've noticed is archery hunting is so attractive because of that. You do get closer to the animals, whether it's traditional or a modern archery, like you're getting closer. You usually have better seasons. You get to see more animals. Those are all things that have enticed us all to go into archery. And I think traditional archery is just like another subset of that, where it just gets more and more enriched as you, as you go down that road. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I appreciate a lot of what you said there about kind of the, um, the difficulty and, and even in ways how that's almost relative. Like, so for you coming from a long history of shooting a bow, you know, young age, and then even killing animals at a pretty young age, and then doing that consistently for a number of years, for you to continue to push your personal boundaries and grow as a hunter and as an archer, you essentially increased the difficulty, like willingly by going to tra- to going to traditional in a way. Whereas for some guys, going back to the conversation of, yes, you could take a fair amount of people and with modern equipment, get them to shoot relatively effectively at, say, 40 to 50 yards with a compound bow. But maybe they don't have a ton of time to practice throughout the year. Maybe they don't have a ton of time to get in the field each year. Maybe they're the you know, the guy from the Midwest or East who only gets to go hunt elk for a week a year. And it might, there's plenty of guys who it takes years and years and years to kill an elk. And so for them, it's like their, their journey, their level of difficulty continues to remain very high, even if they are shooting modern equipment, that's very effective. Right. And so that's, that's why it's all individual. And there's so many different things to consider when it, you know, comes to a conversation like that. Yeah, no, you're right on. I mean, it, we're all in different paths and, and there was, I mean, archery hunting with a modern compound is still really hard. I mean, I remember when we went to Wyoming and hunted uh, mule deer, um, and Ryan and I, we went up there and we have a, a video on that, but I ended up getting a pretty nice buck. And I just remember feeling when I shot that buck, like, I cannot believe I got it because even though we were seeing so many bucks, they were so smart and there was the country so steep and they always had the wind in their favor. And there were so many eyes. It just seemed like you couldn't even get close to them. And um, so I'm not at, by any means saying that that is not challenging. It's extremely challenging. And I think um, anybody that archery hunts understands that. And there's so many varying levels of terrain and habitat where you hunt. Some are better for traditional archery and some are make it way, way, way harder, almost to the point where it seems impossible. Um, 
and everybody's in a different spot, like you said. And I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned as, uh, I don't know if you want to go down that road, but we were talking about the changes that are coming here in Oregon with uh, our archery season and how things are getting controlled. I think the biggest thing is trying us as sportsmen to, one, stay together, number one, but to, you know, realize that we have all these little subsets of people and, and their skill levels and what they want to do, what, you know, um, and, uh, and utilizing those and making the whole picture kind of work together, you know, as a whole is, is kind of what the entire goal is um, so that everybody has an equal chance to be able to, um, to be able to go and do what they love and be outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to talk about some of those issues uh, just real quick before we do, you know, one of the things I want to ask just kind of, again, talking about your journey with trend uh, with traditional archery is taking, uh, taking shooting a bow out of the equation, as we've talked about, and this is very common sense with traditional archery, you have, you have to close that distance more consistently and more effectively. So I'm just kind of curious, not from a shooting perspective, but just because of the demands of traditional archery, how has that kind of refined your hunting skills, right? So whether that's your pursuit, your stalking, whether that's your better understanding of animal behavior, the things you've learned by blowing it in that 40 to 60 yard range that you could have got away with before, just anything kind of along that where it's refined your hunting skills. What are some examples there? Yeah, um, man, there's, there's a lot of things I could touch on there, but, um, probably the biggest one is patience. Um, I was always been a pretty aggressive, especially elk hunting, pretty aggressive elk hunter calling, moving in, sounding like an elk, like, and where I live, I, I'm going to live in Oregon on the Oregon coast. It's super thick. Um, I do most of my elk hunting on the coast here, um, or, you know, in other areas like where I'll go and hunt in Northern Idaho, where it's very thick and brushy there too. Um, you know, that, that terrain bodes pretty well for traditional archery, but, um, patience, I think is a big one is like for them to get within that 20 yards, 30 yards, or you to get within that, it, it requires a lot more patience for them to either be unaware of your presence or two, like in my calling setups, my location has to be really good. And I have to have more time from when they had last heard me to when they're coming in. So like, like in a calling setup, you know, what they can pinpoint right where you last called from. And I either need to move and be in a different location than that, or I need it to have been five, 10, 15 minutes since I've done it. So it requires more patience. Sometimes you know, in the instance of elk hunting, you need that animal engaged and you've got to kind of keep their attention. Um, and if you don't call for a long time, sometimes that can make them lose interest if a bull's fired up. Um, sometimes it's a good thing though, because it promotes curiosity on their behalf and they kind of want to come check out what they heard. But so patience, I think I would say is probably number one. Like I, I've gone from being as more aggressive to when I get into the moment of truth or when you get close to the animal, like having to be a lot more patient and waiting for that opportunity. And if the opportunity doesn't present itself, maybe let the animal move off and then try again, you know, and uh, it's just, a, it requires a lot more patience when you get within that red zone of, of the animal. Um, so that'd be number one. Number two would be just understanding the animal and what they're to be able to accomplish um, you know, the, of getting close to them. So like knowing where they're going to bed and where they're feeding, understanding the biology of the animal. I really, probably my favorite thing to do is hunt blacktail deer. And, uh, there, you can't get out. I mean, I shouldn't say you can't, but for me to go up and glass a blacktail deer from a classic Canyon in a reprod as a bow hunter, isn't going to do me any good during the rut because they're active they're moving by the time i get over there they're gone and you know and it's going to be really hard for me to get a shot so um actually getting in reading tracks reading sign like trying to understand what they're doing to a deeper level I'm not saying that you really necessarily figure that out um fully but um it's forced me to think about things differently versus just going out and trying to find an animal you know it's like oh i see one there's an animal i shot it it's like well i didn't really know what that animal was doing i don't even know why it was there um you know i'm not 
one of the biggest things I've learned is just thinking about the animal and what their, what their day is like and how can I hunt them according to what they're doing. So like for deer and, and it, is a, is a very simple thing and elk are the same way. Most of these animals are feeding aggressively at night, especially like blacktail deer here. They feed from midnight to like four in the morning. And that is the time when we can't hunt them, right? That's like when they're on their feet the most. And then first thing in the morning when I'm getting up and going hunting, they're going to bed. They might already be in bed. They're, they're going to go lay down. They're winding down and the same with elk. And so like understanding that when I go in the morning, like this, this, they're getting tired. They're like, not, they've already eaten. They're not really looking. And this isn't a hard, fast rule. It's just kind of a, a generalization that I've, I've, I've learned is that those types of things and understanding the animal and what they're doing can help me like, okay, well in the middle of the day, if they're going to be bedded down somewhere, then I need to be close to where they're bedding, right? And where they like to be during the middle of the day when they're being lazy. And then in the evening, as they're getting up and heading to those food sources, like there's ways that I can intercept them. And I think just like simple things like that, that I didn't really focus on, has made, it's, I've started to focus more on those and trying to understand them and learn what they're doing and applying that with the patients and Another thing that I've really has elevated is my level of tracking an animal. And like one of the things I've learned in the traditional community is like, they, like there is a, there are a group of people out there that are unbelievable trackers. Like you see in Africa and people that like we go there and would witness and like, how do they even like tell where this animal's going? Um, there is the ability for people to, to be really good at that and, and, talk about a hunting method that doesn't get talked about uh, a ton. I mean, it does. Usually it's in snow, but I'm talking outside of snowy conditions. There are guys that in the right conditions can track down animals and, and follow them long distances, um, whether they're calling, whether, you know, whether the rut's on or it's not. I mean, it doesn't really matter. That animal's there and it's leaving sign. And it's pretty incredible when you've witnessed people that are really good at that. And it's made me realize you know, I thought I was okay at blood trailing and all that, but really I like, I've realized that I have so much room to grow there. Um, things like that, I guess have, have really grown since I've switched to traditional archery and it opened my eyes, I guess, to more areas that I could grow more. Yeah. No, that's good, man. There's so much good stuff in there. I, uh, I'm fascinated by the whole tracking aspect and actually just recorded a podcast with someone about that recently. Um, that one was based mostly in the snow, that type of conversation, which I thought would be a good place to start, but I want to, I want to get some more folks on to talk about tracking outside of that, uh, snow context and really looking at that, whether that's tracking to hunt or as you said, even uh, post-shot tracking. So I totally agree, Mayor. That's, uh, that's fascinating stuff. Yeah. If you need a guy, well, you'll have to hit me up after. I, I think that I know a guy that might be a really good one to have on there um, about it. But Perfect. Yeah, we'll do it. Um, so yeah, hit, hit Oregon. You mentioned some potential changes. I'm not even fully aware. I'm obviously not a resident, not fully dialed in on the discussion, but I know that there has been discussion uh, and maybe some actual proposals. Uh, based on, uh, or I should say, and changes to archery seasons and things like that. So kind of fill us in on what that conversation has looked like, um, where you see it headed, and just kind of your perspective on it. Yeah, so in Oregon, the Fish and Wildlife Commission has proposed to um, control some Oregon elk seasons, uh, the Oregon elk archery elk season. Right now, um, we have most of the eastern side of the state is controlled for its uh, for rifle elk. There are some like general spike tags you can get. Um, the west side of the state has typically always been um, general for archery for rifle. You know, there's uh, controlled units. So overall, rifle's been pretty controlled, but archery has mostly been general in Oregon, with the exception of a few units. This year, they're proposing to control more units because of many reasons, but the primary reasons from my understanding is that the um, hunter uh, overcrowding is one problem in some of the units because there's no cap on the tags. There's some popular units that have been 
recently with the growth of archery and more people getting into it and the popularity of it and and there being no cap on non-residents there's been more hunters in some units um, than what they would like uh, for from a hunter experience standpoint but the big thing they said is that there's many of these units that are below management objective for bull to cow ratios at the end of the season they do their uh, surveys and there's many units that have been under management objective out of the five years there's lots of them that have been under objective for more than three of the five years so at that point they want to start implementing some changes and try to control things so that they can get those numbers back up Um, another thing that they noticed was um, the archery hunters in some units have become more successful than what was originally kind of archery seasons were intended for Uh, that's overall looking at it's probably not uh, true amongst most of the units, but there's one unit in o- Oregon that they actually, the archery hunters had more, had harvest more branch bulls than rifle hunters. Um, and so uh, that was one of the, it's not necessarily a concern, I guess, but just one thing that they noted, because one of the things they want is equitable utilization of tags, which just means, you know, the rifle hunters can get this percentage of elk harvest, archery hunters get this percentage. They're trying to do it equitably to um, correspond with what the people want, you know, as a whole, the population and how they like to hunt. If 65% of the people like prefer to rifle hunt, then that's 65% of the tags will go there and archery gets like 35 is kind of what their, I think their designation is right now or close to that. Don't quote me on that though, but all that being said, states like Idaho, Montana, Colorado, um, lots of these states that have previously had ample over-the-counter opportunity, uh, you've, you've seen the, those numbers getting controlled. Idaho, the tag sold out so quick this year. Used to be able to go over there and just buy a tag during season and go, and, and now you, you, you're lucky to get one if you're sitting at your computer ready to, you know, get it right away. So I think the trend is, and I don't think anybody can really argue with the trend is that things are getting more controlled. There's getting to be less opportunity as a whole, especially for elk hunting in the West. And I think we're going to see that continue, that trend to continue um, for multiple reasons. And um, I just want to be very clear that I am a hunter at first. Like I don't, um, my opinion, you know, yes, I'm a traditional archer, but more than anything, I want to see hunting be around and we need, you know, good populations of, we need hunting to be popular in, in our, in our country, in our States and in our communities so that we have voices when, you know, anti-hunters and other people try to shut us down. I think that's, super important but at the same time i think it's safe to say that hunting has gotten more popular there are more people into it and we're getting like to the point now where there's only such a resource that we can you know that as conservationists we need to keep animals around for the coming years and and our model has been very good at doing that the north american conservation models you know that's what we pride ourselves in is kind of regulating ourselves so that we have it continual resource down the road and uh, I know a lot of people would argue about how how that's done and whether it's done well in their state I hear a lot of talk here in Oregon a lot of most of the hunters I I just say most but a lot of them will badmouth the commission and how they manage it because they here we can't hunt you know, cougars with dogs, we can't run bait for bears, so predators, and now they introduced wolves, you know, um, that have since moved into our state. And there's a lot of, you know, negativity towards that, which are all true things. I just, I guess I would encourage people for one to look at it from an, you know, someone who doesn't hunt, but maybe they don't live off of elk or deer meat. They want to see the wild be wild place, right? They want to see the animals that normally were there be there. And just because it doesn't if to them, it doesn't matter if there's a bunch of elk or deer. They just want an elk or a deer to be there. And they want a cougar and a bear and a wolf to be there, too. And uh, I'm kind of playing devil's advocate, obviously. But um, I think that it's important to understand that point of view and knowing that as we get hunters who see the value in having deer and elk meat versus having to buy something that's had steroids and you know and everything else it's come from a uh the the meat that you're consuming is not near as high quality as it is when you get it from the wild 
you know, people will start to understand, wow, this is a valuable thing and we need to manage it. Like if we manage our resources to try to maximize, you know, having more elk and deer around because this is our valuable resource, then the controlling of predator populations might become more of a, you know, a, I don't know, it might be, you might be able to convince them of that more, you know, or they'll be able to see the value in it. Um, so that's up to us as hunters to do that. I know I'm kind of getting off topic there a little bit from Oregon, but I just think <clears throat> everywhere in the West is going through this. And there's, I think moving forward, we're going to have to get creative on try to find ways to preserve hunting opportunity, but still, you know, um, be able to, um, control things too and cater to all the groups like the guys that just want to rifle hunt the guys that want archery hunt they say like traditional archery right now is like in our state they tell us is one percent but i think there are more guys that are interested in doing it they just don't have an incentive or a reason to do it um i know i've touched on a lot there there's one other thing i would want to mention is with the state in oregon i think they they did a pretty good thing the history on it and i'm not like super knowledgeable on it, but this is based off of what the state has, the information they've provided is that, you know, 40 years ago, they created hunting season, uh, archery hunting seasons in Oregon. And it says in their write-up that the main reason they did that was to attract hunters away from rifle, from overcrowded rifle seasons. So rifle seasons got a really crowded at the time. They created archery. These are archery seasons that were like a longer season. They were during a better time of year to hunt. And it was to try to attract those rifle hunters away from the busy seasons and give them like kind of, you know, distribute people into different areas. And I think that's a super important tactic for us to use moving forward that as things get more controlled, <clears throat> we got to find ways to give people incentives to maybe not for everybody, but for those that are willing to do it, you know, to it will create more hunting opportunity. We don't want to take away hunting opportunity. I think, you know, hunting with modern archery equipment is for super popular. It's effective and it needs to be around. And it is the bulk majority of what archery season should be because there's a lot more people that want to do that and are involved in that. But I would be, I'd be willing to bet that a lot of those people became archers because of that incentive to go to the different season that was a little better. Maybe it was a little longer, um, you got to see more animals. There was a better experience because there was less people. I think we're going to have to try to, to utilize a simple tactic in some way to, you know, to keep hunting vibrant, alive, and to keep people in the woods versus just controlling everything. And now you only get to go hunting once every three or four years or that, or you need to have a lot of money and apply in eight or nine States. You need to own a ranch where you get landowner tags, you know, I just hate to see it become a money game and a property game like that ability uh, backcountry hunters and anglers, you know, is all about preserving public lands. Well, what good are public lands if the hunting is so controlled that we can only go once every five years, four years, three years. I, like I would really, to me, to be able to go hunting every year is super important. And I think that's the same for probably all of your listeners too. Yeah. Yeah, man, it's uh, there's so many variables there, and I I ask not having hunted Oregon and not having it on like you know the the short list of states to hunt, but just because, as you said, it's this these types of issues are uh, worthwhile and honestly happening all over the place, and different states are doing different things and facing different challenges, and I think it's really important for us as hunters to pay attention to that, even if it's in a state that doesn't uh, directly affect us because it, it helps us begin to think through things and really anticipate what's coming and think even through solutions that can be proposed. I mean, you can see one state that's doing something well and hopefully try to petition that in another state where you think it'd be beneficial. And it's just, a, it's, I think the responsibility is on all of us is to not be experts. I'm certainly not an expert, but to at least care enough to pay attention and be involved and see what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a, been a big transition for me too. Is just 
more involved. I was able to sit in on a meeting with the Oregon Fish and Wildlife Commission uh, Zoom meeting where they did a presentation on the, the kind of the things that they're working through. And I think as you get involved, the one thing you realize is that there's not an easy answer. There's so many influences and voices coming at them and they're trying to just do the best they can with all of um, you know that input, and it's it's. I think as you get involved, you realize, well, yeah, this isn't like cut and dry. You know, it's really easy to be an armchair quarterback and say, oh, they need to do this, this, and that. But then, when you hear their opposition and things they're dealing with, the budgets they're trying to balance, all that stuff, it's a uh, it's a complicated thing. So just being involved, like you're saying, is super important. In Oregon, um, one of the things that we've proposed that I think would be really cool in other states potentially is to make like just one, either one unit or one region or, a, you know, like just a small area out of the overall picture of management, but having an area that was kind of more of like a primitive hunting unit where you'd have like iron sight rifle hunting, maybe a muzzleloader hunt, and then like a traditional archery hunt or something like that. Um, and just as an experiment, we were, you know, one of the things we had proposed was having like a pilot program where you run it for three years, see the level of interest, see, you know, how the uh, animals and the numbers do during that time. And, uh, you know, and I think that, you know, talking with other hunters, there are rifle hunters that would love to take their grandpa's, you know, whatever, 30, 30 and go out there with a iron sight rifle and to go hunt. And it would just be kind of cool to have an area like that, that, you know, maybe it's not for everybody, but if it's a small subset, it's just maybe it's a little easier to get a tag there um, because you're making things harder on yourself. Ideas like that and just trying to be involved and uh, and voice your opinion, because once things change, you know, it's hard to kind of get that switched back around. So, yeah, that idea is like that's a perfect example to me of like kind of outside the box thinking I haven't heard of that type of idea or thought of it myself and i'm not saying that that you know having a primitive unit should be the way of the future it's what you said it's like an experiment almost to see like okay if we use these methods what happens over the course of two three five years i think that's a great idea yeah the so to kind of go to the history of oregon 40 years ago they created those archery seasons at the time there was, you know, a little bit of involvement, a little bit of involvement, it got more popular. Now it's to the point now where, where archery seasons here are, there are, there's a heavy participation in archery seasons. Um, there's lots of people out doing it. And at the time people were against it or not, you know, they didn't want to do it. They were like, um, but they created this incentive, I guess, is my point. And that through that incentive, people did it and they realized they fell in love with it and they liked it and enjoyed it. And I can tell you, I don't think everybody should do traditional archery necessarily. It, it does take a certain mentality, just like archery does, right? Like you have to be okay with that challenge. You have to be okay with failure and uh, the roller coaster ride that is archery hunting like it takes a certain type of person to be able to do that and enjoy it and to want to do it every year. But I would tell you that like traditional archery is just the same thing. It's just a different level of it, you know? And um, I don't know, I guess I just encourage those like wherever you're at with your hunting walk, like just to keep moving forward and to keep challenging yourself. If that, if you know, and, and to not necessarily get so comfortable in one spot and really, really get at it to where you're, uh, I don't know, you're not growing anymore. Because then then the, re the enjoyment and the reward, if you're one that really feeds off of that challenge, that reward won't be as great. And I experienced that through when I switched to traditional archery. I drew a really good tag in, the, in our state here in Oregon as a rut like blacktail tag and I could use a rifle on it. And I brought the rifle and my, my traditional bow and I was like kind of on the fence about it. And I ended up shooting a pretty nice buck <clears throat> with the rifle as the best buck I saw the whole trip. And I had a, I passed up on a couple bucks with that were small with my re or with my long bow and looking back at it, I'm like, man, why, you know, I just went for that bigger buck, but I really think I would have been happier shooting a smaller buck with that, or the, a recurve or a longbow and just because like as i've i went back and forth once i experienced success with the traditional bow it was like nothing that i did with a compound even came close 
to giving me as much enjoyment or satisfaction. And I think that's why I sold my bow and I went and switched to it was because it's like, I want to hunt for what really makes me happy and what I enjoy the most. And I think that's what really everybody should hunt with. We have, I'm, I will be honest. And I mean, there's times where social media can put a pressure on you. Like you feel like you need to be successful and you need to, you know, get a nice animal or do this or that, but that, that pressure, that influence takes the fun out of it. And it, it's really not why we should be hunting. I don't think anybody would say they, they want to hunt for those reasons. So it's made me just realize like what truly makes me happy when I'm out there. And it's, it's not, yes, I'm happy when I get an animal, but it's more about how I'm doing it, you know, and like the ways that make me um, feel like I'm growing and that are challenging me that that's really what makes me happy when I'm hunting. And so that's what I want to stick to. And I think that's different for everybody. You need to find what makes you happy um, when you're out there in the woods and make sure you don't lose sight of that. Yeah. Yeah. And for, for some folks, even what makes them happy or they're kind of like call it next evolution or hunter is even about them. Like maybe you find that your ultimate satisfaction is helping other people, right? And whether that's helping a new hunter, whether that's just hunting in a group and sharing the success as it comes, right? Calling for a buddy and he fills a tag. Like there's, there's just so many ways that, uh, the experience and value of hunting can pay off to you personally. That's not all about just filling a tag. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool, man. We uh, cover good ground, dude. And you know, none of these conversations are meant to solve the world's problems or give every answer, but I, I enjoy having conversations like this because it gets my mind going and helps me think of new things and have different perspectives and all that. So uh, dude, thanks for sharing it. And, uh, yeah, before we go any, whether it's to go watch the video we talked about earlier, connect with you on social, ask any questions, maybe about Oregon stuff for guys who are interested, any way to maybe, um, get in contact with you, follow you on social, anything like that. Yeah. Um, on, I, on Instagram, I have, uh, under rogue wild, probably the best way to like follow our video content is on YouTube under rogue wild productions. Um, um, yeah, I'm always open to help people. I've had people ask about, you know, questions about Oregon, hunting Oregon, blacktail, Roosevelt hunting is what I've done most. Um, you know, anything I'm always willing to try to help people. And I think, um, that's one of the great things about just the archery community and just hunting in general. There's a lot of people that are willing to help and, uh, I would love to do the same. So Well, that's a wrap on this conversation, guys. I hope that it helped you and also gave you some things to think about. Don't forget to enter the giveaway happening this month in May of 2021 by emailing your guest or topic suggestion or hunting question to podcast at xmountgear.com, leaving a review of the podcast or sharing and tagging us on social media at huntbackcountry. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast application so that you receive future episodes automatically, and we will talk to you soon.